to sufficiency. Uh, not that sufficiency of Scripture has a challenge to it, but it's the, the opposition, uh, the, the tendency in the world, uh, in, in leadership, in, in, in false teachers, and even in our own hearts to uh, gravitate uh, towards uh, this mindset that the Scripture isn't enough for us. We need to go into superstition and, and figure out um, how to live our lives uh, without going to the Word of God. Uh, so we want to see today the claims of sufficiency uh, that Scripture indeed does claim of itself that it is enough for us. Uh, God tells us about His Word in, in that kind of language. So let me begin in a word of prayer, and we'll open up the Word of God together. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, and we ask that you would um, enable us, Lord, by your grace to hear from you this morning. Lord, uh, the world all around us uh, challenges and, and, and teaches that we need other methods, uh, other, other sources of wisdom that aren't you. Uh, in order to tackle the issues of life today. And Lord, we, we, we know that you say you're enough, Lord, but I pray that this morning would be uh, uh, useful in your hands to, uh, to make those roots, as it were, a little deeper, Lord, in our confidence in you, in your word, and uh, you would just uh, bless your, your people, Lord, as we look at your word and the promises that are in it, we pray, Lord, that uh, we would, as a result of this time together, uh, be all the more confident, Lord, to go to you in times of need. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to begin just briefly the same way we began last week by this opening verse in John 10.10. 10. John 10.10 10 says that the thief comes only to steal and destroy, but I, Jesus, speaking here, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So the, the, the thief, the enemy, the, the devil, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He is the great thief, uh, the great murderer. Christ says he was the murderer from the beginning and destroyed. That's what... Satan and sin does is it destroys. We're going to see some of that this next hour about the destruction of sin, uh, but yet the deliverance of, of God in Christ. But comparing this great enemy and his purpose of coming, he, he came to steal away the presence of God from his creation, from humanity, and to steal away the relationship that humanity came to have with God. Uh, he, the enemy came to kill humanity uh, and to render us dead spiritually uh, towards God. This is spiritual death, and, and not only that, but, but corruption of sin does kill the body as well. It is not good for you, even on a health basis. To, to sin. Uh, and, and again, the, the enemy came to destroy. He came to, to destroy the works uh, of God, to destroy the great, beautiful creation that God made in the beginning. Remember in Genesis 1 and 2, how beautiful it was and how God said, it, it is good, it is good. And when he made man and woman, he said, it's very good when he was done. The enemy came to destroy all that. And he continues to come into your life and into the world and roam about like a roaring lion uh, to devour, to kill, to destroy. But Christ says, I came, I came that you may have life, that those whom God has set his love on might have life, not death. And you can think of it this way, where the enemy steals life away, kills life, and destroys life, Christ gives life. And not just any life, as we saw last week, not just any life is it 
that Christ gives, but it is an abundant life that he gives his children. It is a sweet life, a life where we can have everything that we could ever need. That's the kind of life that he has come to give you. Now, now realize, this is something that you have now. This kind of life is something that the children of God have right now. Christ didn't come so that one day in heaven you might achieve that abundant life. No, he came that you might have that beginning and starting today. Beginning at your conversion. When you came to know Christ, you had, at that point, everything that you needed pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. And that's exactly what Christ came to give us. Now, how do we have, how do we experience this life, this abundant life? It is through the Word of God. How do we have an abundance of what is required for the day-to-day issues of life? Where do we find the abundance? Well, it is in relation to Jesus Christ through the Word of God. That's where. It is in the person and work of Christ. You go to Him for everything that you could ever need. And the place where you go to Him is not in some fuzzy feeling, not in some experience, but in the very Word of God. That's where you find Him. That's where you can meet the Lord Jesus Christ, as it were, and come face to face with His glory. So, the world would say, the enemy would say, no, that's not enough. Sure, Christ can get you in, sure He can get you into the church and give you eternal life, but the, the, the stuff of this world, Jesus is not enough. And, and then you want to talk about the, the Bible, that old, old book? No way. We have evolved as a society since the days when the Bible was written. We've moved on from that. In, in the modern era, the postmodern era, and whatever era we live in now, who knows what this is defined by? Just, uh, just outright, I liken it a lot to the book of Judges, where everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. That seems to be like what we're living through, especially here in America. Everybody just figuring out on their own, living life to, to fulfill their own desires, and doing whatever they think is right, and not going to anybody else for what is right and true and honorable. The world would say that the Bible isn't enough to govern your life, to give you the tools to work on yourself, to change yourself into a better man or a better woman. The Bible's not enough for that. The Bible isn't enough for the deepest longings of your heart, the most painful wounds of your soul, the Bible and Jesus is not enough. You need therapy. You need drugs. You need to be distracted by entertainment. You need psychology. You need the gurus to tell you, no, God's word is sufficient. And we want to see that in Scripture We want to see that in Scripture. So open with me, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3, again, as as you turn there to 2 Timothy 3, I want to remind you that the book of 2 Timothy was written to give Timothy, this young pastor, the fearlessness and the courage that is required to preach the word and nothing else. When all the, the wise speakers of his age said, no, you need to go into speculation. No, you need to give the people what they want to hear. Timothy needed courage and fearlessness to just preach the word. Nothing more and nothing less. And that's exactly why Paul wrote to Timothy. Just briefly in chapter 1, verse Six, he says, for this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is the gift of preaching and pastoral ministry, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. 
And he, alludes, and he makes that connection in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, what's the charge? Preach the word. Nothing more, nothing less. That's why 2 Timothy was written. To exhort and encourage this, this man to preach the word to not neglect the gift, to hold to sound doctrine, to go to the Bible, and nothing else. And that's exactly what we're going to see this morning. As we look at the claims of the sufficiency of Scripture, we're going to see that the Word of God is all that we need to live for God. It is all that we need to teach and preach. It is all that you need to change and have spiritual victory in your life. It is all that you need to live and to make decisions. The, the definition of sufficiency of Scripture is on the top of your pages. If you have a new set of notes from this morning, it, it is this. Sufficiency of Scripture means... That all things necessary for salvation, all things concerning faith, and all things necessary to live the abundant life are taught in the Bible. That's the sufficiency of Scripture. Second Timothy verse three or chapter three, verses fourteen through seventeen. We're just going to attack these one at a time and. Uh, Kind of like what we did last week. We're just going to go verse by verse and, and explain because this is, again, what the whole book is about. So we can just pick a passage and just go right through it and, and it, it defends the sufficiency of Scripture. Verse 14, 2 Timothy three fourteen. Paul says, You, however, speaking to Timothy, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. So Timothy here, he has learned Scripture. He's learned Scripture. And the, the command here is continue. That's the command. Continue on in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. To keep going, to press on, to move forward in the word of God, to not go to the left or to the right, to your own thoughts or into the thoughts of man, not into your own speculations or into the teachings of the world. No, keep that, that straight and narrow path on the word of God. Continue straightforward in the things that you have learned. Now, Timothy has learned some things, obviously. right? He says, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Now, who did he learn these things from? Well, we've got to go to chapter 1, verse 15. In the middle of a, of a thought, we, we pick up here in chapter 1, verse 15. Paul tells Timothy, and that from childhood you have known, from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. Oh, excuse me, that's the wrong one five. There you go. 2 Timothy 1.5, excuse me. Who did he learn these things from? Who, who did he learn from? Uh, verse 5 of chapter 1, excuse me. It says, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am sure that it is in you as well. How wonderful this, just this passing sentence is. The, the faith, right? The sincere faith. 
was is in you and it was first it was first though it didn't just come from you it came from somebody else I know that whoever gave this faith to you, it is, it is in you as well. This sincere faith is what was given. This, the, the truth of the word of God. Usually when faith is spoken of this way, the sincere faith, it, is, it has this blend of, uh, I have faith, I believe in something, but it is also what you believe in, the faith. Right? So... This has a bit of a blend of both nuances. The sincere faith that is within you is your sincere faith in truth, but it is also the truth, the truth that is within you. This is what he speaks of later on that we just looked at in chapter 3, verse 14. You were taught something. You learned something. You learned the faith. You learned the word of God. And notice who he learned it from. His grandmother and his mother, Lois and Eunice. And we don't have any uh, record of the father of this man, Timothy. It, it seems like his father is a Greek and an unbeliever from just the lack of the information that we have about him. It's, and the abundance of information that we have of his mother and grandmother in the absence of his father, either his father died when he was very young or his father was not a believer. And most believe that his father was not a believer. And so you have, you could say, a blended kind of a family, a blended upbringing where you have this young man growing up where his dad doesn't believe in God is not a God-fearer, does not believe in Scripture, that is the truth, but then you have this mom and this grandma, Lois and Eunice, who are faithful to teach him the Word of God. And it's amazing because they had a sincere faith in the truth, and they passed that sincere faith and the truth to this young man. You see the power that a, that a godly influence of a mom and even of a grandmother can have. You may have regrets about how you raise your children. If you have grandchildren, God is giving you another chance. And you can have a Timothy. Isn't that wonderful? You might think that, oh, my husband, he's an unbeliever, and I feel like I'm doing this all alone. Well, no, the Lord is with you. And even you can have a Timothy. You may not raise a, a preacher or a pastor, but you can raise a Christian man or woman. And that Christian man or woman can have an impact for the kingdom. And God can use you to raise that young person up. To have that kind of impact. But it starts with you. Right? It started with Lois and Eunice. How thankful we are for these, these women and their faithfulness. Look what they did. Verse 15, back in uh, 2 Timothy 3, continuing through that passage in 2 Timothy 3, uh, verse 14, it says, continuing the things that you've learned, knowing from whom you've learned them, Lois and Eunice, mom and grandma, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So his mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice, taught him the sacred writings from childhood. From childhood, from, from infancy. Maybe even before he could understand the words that they were saying, they were faithful to teach him and to make known to him the sacred writings, the Bible. The Bible wasn't a foreign object in Lois and Eunice's house. Amen. It was something that, he, that Timothy grew up very aware of. It was often quoted, it seems like. 
And it's doubtful that they had their own copy, but maybe they wrote down the copies from, of passages from the synagogue when they would go and, and teach young Timothy. Or maybe they memorized whole chapters and books, which was very common in their time. And they would quote it and, and, and recite whole books and chapters of the Old Testament to, their, to this young man. For you today, how would this, how would this look like? Uh, what would this look like for us today? For a child to just know the sacred writings, how would, they, how would this be possible today? Yeah, family devotions. If it's, if it's once, twice a week, three times a week, if you've never done family devotions, I'd encourage you to just start with once a week, right? You don't have to go every day. You don't have to have church every single day. You have to live life, and, and you have to practice the things that you're learning, right? But develop a pattern. Just start somewhere and, and open the Word of God. And just read it, right? Just read it. And if questions come up, do it as best as you can answer the, the questions. And if not, then write it down and try and get the answer for, for your children and for your family. Uh, just develop that pattern. Good. Uh, what are some other ways that you, a child could be uh, uh, aware or know the sacred writings of Scripture? Yeah, Sunday school. So bringing them here. Um, bringing them to children's ministry as soon as we start back up, right? Which is a, which is a burden of, of, I know, our children's ministry workers. Uh, we want to provide a place where they can learn the Word of God. Bringing them to not just uh, Sunday service, but to Sunday school, to equipping hour, where we dig deep and just go from verse to verse to verse. That way they're acquainted with, with more Scripture, not just the one book that we're going through in a particular season. Uh, some other ways that you can do this is just write Scripture down and, and, and have it up uh, around the house. Put, if you're memorizing a verse as a family, write it down on index cards and put it on the fridge. Um, develop... Um, Develop a, a, um, a system where your family is regularly acquainted with the Word of God. Uh, listen to Christian music, right? Biblical Christian music. And have conversations with the family and, and tell them not just you know, what I saw today on YouTube about that, but what I read today in the Bible about that, Right? All these things, as you go and as you come, as you rise and as you lay down, uh, tell, God, tell your, your family about the wonderful things that God has done, right? Have conversations with your family. Talk. Talk with each other. You have to talk. And men, we have to lead in this. We have to talk. We have to open our mouths. I don't know, for many of us, including myself, that's not the most natural thing to do. But men, we must open our mouths and talk about just stuff and then wait for the door to open so that we can mention the Word of God and bring God into the room, as it were. All right. But even if you don't have a male leader in the home that's doing this, Mothers, grandmothers, you can be faithful, and your impact can be huge, as it was in the life of Timothy. He was aware, he knew the sacred writings from childhood, from childhood on is the idea. It began childhood, but it didn't stop in childhood. It didn't stop when he became an adolescent. It didn't stop when he became a young man. It kept on going. It just began in childhood. Now notice what was taught to him from childhood. It's the sacred writings. It's these sacred writings. This is just the Bible, right? For them, it was the Old Testament at the time. 
But notice the sufficiency of, the, of Scripture here mentioned in this verse. These sacred writings, the, the Bible, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. It is able, it has the, the power, the dunamis power. There is ability in the word of God. The, the, the Bible does something. So we see here just that the, we're starting to crack open this topic of sufficiency. Right? It's not just some old textbook. But when you open the word of God and you read from it, it is living and active. It is doing something. God is doing something through the word in you. There is activity happening. It's not just reading information. What's the activity? Well, it's able to give you the wisdom. It's able to give you wisdom. And it's not just any wisdom. It's not just any practical knowledge. It's the kind of practical knowledge and wisdom that leads to salvation. That's the kind of wisdom that it's able to give. So we see Scripture is able to give wisdom to lead to salvation. We don't need to go to anything else outside of the Word of God for people around us to get saved. See, that's what this is pointing towards. So this is just one part of the sufficiency of Scripture. We don't need methods. We don't need entertainment. We don't need fun activities to... uh, to have ministry that honors Christ. And, and this is not just here in these four walls, right? This is in our community groups. This is in our nursery, in our children's ministry. This is in any kind of a youth ministry or a college ministry. Any kind of evangelism or outreach. And especially in the Sunday gathering of the saints, in the Sunday service, In all of these contexts, you don't need anything else but the Word of God. We don't need fancy games. We don't need to entertain. I had a conversation with a a man this week. We're talking about youth ministry and our desire, our burden to have a youth ministry here at Redeemer Bible Church. And... For, for some, the, the assumption is, well, you know, we got to make it fun. we got to make it fun. Youth ministry is supposed to be fun because they're kids, right? No. God doesn't tell us to have a fun youth ministry, right? It, he doesn't. You don't need games. You don't need fun. You need the Word of God, period. And if your kids don't want to come to a youth ministry that just preaches the word of God and has food in the back and that's it, I don't know what to say. They're missing out. They're missing out. I don't care how much fun that they're going to have on video games at home and you let them stay home instead of go to a ministry that they don't consider fun. They're missing out, period. These kinds of attractions is something that the church has bought into. Making a Sunday service entertaining and gripping, and, and you got to have the, the dim lights and the fog and you know the, the, the charismatic leaders and singers and you know, these super emotional songs, and you got to have all of these, these parts for it to be a church service because that's really what people are going to come for. Is if it's just boring, if it's just a guy up there talking, then nobody's going to come for that. And so churches buy into, well, then we got to draw the crowds then. And we got to, and the only way to draw the crowds, the only way to draw crowds of, How to word this. The only way to draw crowds of sinners who don't know what they really need 
is to give them a bunch of stuff that they don't really need. But in order for God to do a work in the souls of men, you got to give them what they really need. And what is that, according to this verse? What is that? The sacred writings. Thank you. You got to give them the word. Now, the next verse, speaking about Timothy, continuing the things that you've learned. You remember Lois and Eunice, your mom and your grandmother, that you learned them from. And, and, and remember the word that, that they gave to you, this word that is, is, is more than sufficient to change the heart of, of a sinner and to, and to lead them to salvation in Christ. Remember those things. Continue in, in, in that scripture and then a verse that we're all very well acquainted of by this time in this class. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. Now notice the context where this verse sits, because we all know all Scripture is inspired by God, Right? That's where we go, right? How do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? 2 Timothy uh, 3.16. That's how. That's a, it's just a knee, it should be a knee-jerk reaction to what is the Bible? What's inspired by God? It's, it's, it's produced. It's created by God. But notice that he gives an explanation of bibliology, an explanation of what the Bible is, not because he wants Timothy to just know what the Bible is. He's not just, this isn't just part of Paul explaining bibliology. This is just a small phrase in the larger context of the Bible is enough. That's what Paul is speaking about. He's not explaining what the Bible is. He's rather explaining what the Bible can do. If, if Timothy, therefore, is to ever stand against the pressures to compromise the sufficiency of Scripture, then he must be convinced that Scripture is truly the divine creation of God himself. It is breathed out by God in his divine fiat. It is his creation in the same way that he breathed out the stars of the universe, he breathed out the word of God. He made it. The point in verse 16 is that Timothy be convinced of what the Bible can do, not so much what it is. Because he goes on, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Profitable for these things profitable it kind of goes back to the verse before the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom to lead to salvation remember that In verse 15 there it's the bible is able to lead to salvation it's the same idea here with profitable god's word is not only able to lead to salvation but it's profitable for the rest of life too the sufficiency of scripture it is profitable. It, that means that it is useful. Useful, not useless. It is useful for what? For today. For the issues of today. It is useful to change a person. It is useful for your life today. It is not useless for handling whatever a man or a woman might go through. It is entirely adequate, is the idea. It is entirely adequate. It's not just enough, but it's more than enough. It is more than adequate and profitable for these things. What things? Well, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Now, I can't mention this verse without doing this because this is just helpful for you 
It's able for, it's profitable for teaching, which is kind of a positive thing, right? Here, let me erase this. For teaching, which is kind of a positive thing. For reproof, which is kind of a negative thing, you could say. For correction, which is a kind of a negative thing. And for training, which is a positive thing. Now, this, this teaching and reproof, these have to do with your mind. And teaching is to positively inform your mind. Reproof is negatively to stop your mind from thinking wrong thoughts, to stop your mind from believing lies or falsehood. It is to get in the way of your mind and to stop it from uh, believing error. Now, this correction and training, this has to do with your actions. This has to do with your actions. So your mind and your actions, your, your, or your thoughts and your actions, uh, or your mind and your hands, you could say, or whatever. When it comes to your actions, we need to be corrected, right? The, that's what the Bible does. It comes to you and says, what you're doing is wrong. That is the idea of correcting here. What you're doing is wrong. It's sin. It's sin. But it doesn't just leave us there. But it also says, well, put off that. That's the correction. Put off that and put on this godly living. The, that's the training of your actions, of your conduct. So everything, that, I mean, what else is left in the makeup of humanity? Our mind, our soul, our heart, which is all the same sphere. And then your actions, your body. What else is left? Everything that you need, inside and out, for what happens on the inside and what you do with your, with your body, Everything, when it comes to a human being, is um, provided for, negatively and positively, in the Bible. It's profitable. It's enough. It's adequate. It is able to change the Christian. Notice it's not just... Notice the goal. So that, that's purpose, right? Whenever you see that, that's purpose... So that the man of God or the woman of God, he's speaking to a man here, Timothy, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The Bible is enough to, for anything that you would come across in your life. The Bible is enough to make you into the man or the woman that is adequate, that is well-equipped, that is ready, that is ready for life and to do good works in this world. Any thoughts before you move on to the next passage? Yes, brother in the back. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So that the man of God, if you are not a man or a woman of God, if you're not a Christian, then you will live this life in a state of inadequacy and unequipped. Right? Exactly. The unbeliever just totally rejects the word of God. So if they, if they reject what can make them adequate and, and can give them all the answers, then what are you left with? No answers. You're trying to figure it out on your own, and, and you see the ruin that that has on the lives of people in this world, don't we? We see it every day. We see it every day. What happens when somebody rejects the Word of God? 
It's sin and it's great corruption. Good, good point, brother. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and even as you evangelize, you can think of it this way as well. Uh, remember the, the teaching and the reproof and the, and the correction and the, and the training. You have to deal with this first. You have to correct what they're doing and how they're thinking first. Right? They're, they're, they're thinking that they don't need to fear God. You have to correct that. You have to reprove that. They think that they're not sinning against God. You have to reprove that. And then they think that they can live however they want. You have to correct that. Say, no, that's sin. God calls that sin. He's going to judge you for it. But then you go from the reproof and the correction to the teaching and the training. You actually teach them what God has done for them in Christ. You teach them who God is, right? And you train them. And the first step in the life of the Christian is repent and believe. That's the first act of obedience. The scripture in the New Testament talks about that conversion event as an act of obedience. That is the first act of obedience in the life of the Christian. That's what bursts a Christian is that very act of obedience to, to be trained, to believe, to be taught to believe and repent. You see? So you can even use this for kind of a roadmap for that as well. Good. Let's keep going because we won't finish if we don't. Second uh, Peter 1, verse 2 through 8. We've got to go fast through this because next week we're going we're gonna to try and apply these things to life, okay? Second Peter chapter 1. The, the context of Second Peter is that in this letter... Peter is warned against false teaching that had come into the churches. It's very similar to 2 Timothy. 2 Peter is very, very similar. 2 Peter warns against, against false teachings that had come to the churches. And so Peter writes to these churches, and he describes these false teachings as cleverly devised tales in 2 Peter 1.16 and destructive heresies in 2 Peter 2.1. These tales and these heresies are extra-biblical, outside-the-Bible teachings that drew believers away from their devotion to Christ, it says in 2 Peter. Drew them away from their devotion to Christ. So Peter desired to demonstrate from the start that every Christian has all that they need in the word of Christ. This is the issue that he's attacking. And so he says in verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now, in verse 2, Peter desires that the grace and the peace be in an abundant resource for the believer. He, said, he, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. How? How do you have a, a, an abundance? Remember abundant life? How do you have an abundance of grace and peace in your life? The knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. The knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is exactly what he has granted. The knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Seeing that his divine power, verse 3, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. What has he given you? He's given you everything. He has given you everything. So verse 3, where it says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, when he, see, when he says that, that is 
the grounds on which the multiplication of grace and peace is multiplied to you. This is really what he wants, grace and peace to be multiplied, for you to have everything that you need for life, and to, for you to enjoy the abundant life. He's, he, that's how he introduces his letter. Uh, oh, how I wish that you would uh, experience the, the multiplication of grace and peace in your life. And he says, well, after all, God in his divine power has granted to you everything that you need for life and godliness. See that? See how the logic flows? Oh, my desire is that you would live the abundant life. After all, he gave you everything that you could ever need to have that abundant life. That's the idea here of the wording. Verse 3, Peter is speaking of God's divine power. His divine power. His divine power is, is, is the almighty power of God. And so Peter is saying that the sufficiency of what the Christian has for life and godliness lies in the person who grants it. Right? You've been granted everything that you could ever need. But notice where the granting came from or where the, where the everything that you could ever need comes from. It's his divine power. It's in the, it's in the nature and the power of God himself. So the reason, Christian, why you have everything that you need is not just because the, the Bible touches every part of life and, and that the Bible is, really, uh, is a really good collection of writings. It's really nice. No, it's in the person behind it and working through it it is in god himself the divine power that lies behind and within the word of god itself god from his divine power grants or or gives to the believer to the believer uh, the the excuse me, uh, the, the infinite supply of what is needed for life. So he doesn't just give you just enough. He doesn't give you uh, a little bit and then you got to go to TED Talks to get the rest. Or you got to go to a blog to get the rest. No, he gives you an abundance, an infinite supply of everything that you need. He doesn't give you just a little bit and then you got to go to alcohol or drugs or relationships or entertainment, or your own heart for the rest? No. No. He has given you everything so that you can look outside of yourself and to him for everything that you need. This granting is speaking of the past act of presenting a gift with the present result that it, that gift is in somebody's possession. So on Christmas or your birthday, somebody gives you a gift, and then on the next day, they don't stop by your house again and then say, can I get that gift back, please? Your birthday's over. <laughs> that, would, that would not be very nice, right? And, and you would say, well, I thought you gave it to me as a gift, right? If you gave it to me as a gift, then it is mine, isn't it? In the same way, God has given to you already everything that you need for life and godliness. Amen. It's in your possession now, Christian. You have it. It's just on the shelf, collecting dust. It is your permanent possession. The everything here, the everything is in your permanent possession right now and it has been given granted by pure grace this word grant is a regal term it's a kingly term that that describes a this generous this generous gifting this benevolence god in his rich blessing and in his 
kingly state gives and grants to his subjects, you and I, everything that you could ever need. Also, the term for all things, all things, he has given us everything is placed emphatically towards the front. In the, in the Greek, it, it, it is this word everything is actually somewhere like up here in verse 3. It is to be emphasized. This everything is the main thing. It's the, it's the main point of this sentence. Everything that you need is what God has given you. That's the wording. Christian, everything that you need is what God has already given you. The source is God. What is provided for the believer is permanently and fully sufficient. I heard somebody. Yes. Yeah, it is his nature to be kind and merciful and gracious. But see, the thing is, is he's not, he doesn't have that same mercy and that generosity and that grace towards everyone because not everybody believes, right? So it's, it, it is on, we have a special gift, right? It, yes, it, it is grounded in who he is, but he is not that way undiscriminately and to anybody and everybody. Somebody who is still an enemy of God, there is a, as it were, a limit to the grace and the generosity of God towards that individual. But to us, for some reason, he has chosen to, to unleash that, that generosity, that infinite supply. There's some reason that for us, he has chosen to just, just to, to let the floodgates open full so that we have everything that we need. Yes, amen. This is who he is. He's a generous God. And why would a generous God be good to a sinner like me? Why would he give me everything that I need when I continue to neglect him and neglect him? Why does he still supply it? Oh, because he's good. He's gracious. Now, what is granted Again, everything, but everything pertaining to life and godliness. Just briefly, life in the context of this verse is best understood as referring to everything that we experience on the horizontal plane in terms of what it takes to live life effectively and biblically in our daily activities, in our daily relationships, and in our daily environment with other people. That's life. This is the horizontal. Second, everything pertaining to godliness. This has more of a vertical, you could say. I mean, it's not... It's not... A perfect delineation, right? Because there is a vertical aspect to your daily life, right? God is part of it. And godliness shows up in the horizontal stuff of the world, right? But you, you could think of it this way. It is a helpful way. Everything pertaining to godliness is granted to the, to the Christian. That means that this is godly living, but more so the godly part of the living. It, it is living in accordance to the will of God. That's why it's vertical. It is between you and God. You in living in obedience to God, in relation to God, living with Him at your side, as it were, living in relation to God. Godly living, the life and godliness are described in the rest of the passage. Verses 4 through 7. I'll just read it briefly. 
For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Amazing truth. Uh, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You see, this is all about putting off sin and, and, and escaping the corruption of sin. Now for this reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. This is life in godliness. This is life in godliness. And as you apply the word of God, to your life and your godliness, you will begin to look like these things. Now, last, where do we find what's the fountainhead? What is the source? What's the faucet of everything pertaining to life and godliness? Where can you fill up on the water of life and find everything that you could ever possibly need, the true knowledge of Him. It's not just knowledge about the Bible. It's true knowledge of Him. It is the data and the information that's contained in the pages of Scripture, but as Christ Himself said, they speak of me. Right? And don't go there to know how to you know, balance your checkbook, although it can help you do that. But always in relation to Christ, as you balance your checkbook for Him and, and acknowledge Him as the provider of your checkbook and everything in it. It's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. The knowledge where we find all we need for life and godliness is in the knowledge of Christ. And this connects to verse 8. Because some people say, it's, well, it's just a knowledge of the Father. Well, I would say go to verse 8. These qualities are yours and increasing. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of what? Our Lord Jesus Christ specifically. So the true knowledge of Him is culminated or most importantly, seen in Jesus Christ. This knowledge of Christ is what we can know about Christ through the Bible. It is through a growing and deepening knowledge of Jesus Christ in the Scriptures that the believer finds all that is needed for living life in this world. In the growing and deepening knowledge of Christ, you have everything that you need to be transformed into Christ-likeness. That is life and godliness. So though the believer is encouraged to read the Bible to find all that he needs for life and godliness, the resource he is drawing from is not simply a comp compilation of facts, data, and history. When you read the Word, you are, as it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, you are beholding as in a mirror, in the mirror of the word of God, you're beholding with an unveiled face like Moses on the top of Mount Sinai, you're beholding the glory of the Lord, the glory of Christ. So as you open the pages of Scripture, it shines and it radiates the glory of Jesus Christ. And what happens? You begin to be transformed. As you just expose your face, as it were, to the, to the radiance of Christ in the pages of Scripture, it changes you. It's like saying, as you go outside and expose your face to the rays of the sun, it changes you. You get a tan just by being exposed. Same thing with the Word of God. See Christ, go there to meet Christ, as it were, go there to behold His glory and he'll change you. So our sufficiency is found in a deeper, fuller, obedient, life-changing knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is found in a deeper, fuller, obedient, life-changing 
knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's where your sufficiency is found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have indeed given us everything that we could ever need. Forgive us, Lord, for, for going to our own thoughts and our own emotions instead of you, trying to think that we can do this life on our own without your help, thinking that we're enough, believing the lie of the world, that if we just look inside, you'll have everything that you need. No, Lord, we need to look outside. We need to look to Christ in the pages of Scripture. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that as we open your word, the word of Christ, that you would radiate from it and change us into your image. We love you. We cherish you. We want to be like you because that's what gives you honor. We pray, Lord, that you would show yourself, prove yourself, Lord, prove yourself to be enough. And if that means we've got to go through suffering to prove it, then so be it. Just prove it, Lord. 